That's right, we started in 2014 and we're halfway through. <laughs> Turn if you would to Psalm 120. turn our attention once more to the Psalms of Ascent. Well, remember the Psalms of Ascent are 15 Psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning, Shir Hama'alot, a song of going up, so or likewise a Psalm of degrees. They start with Psalm 120 and continue through 134. Most of them do not name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. And the common understanding of these psalms is that they were sung during the pilgrimage festivals. There were three. Pesach, or Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated the the giving of the law. And Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These festivals were times when the heads of Israel's households were told to travel to Jerusalem and make different kinds of sacrifices at the tabernacle and then the temple that was built by Solomon. You can find the command in Deuteronomy 16.16. And we'll remember that Jerusalem stands on a series of hills, surrounded by other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives. But Jerusalem stands apart, because it's completely surrounded by deep valleys. So however one approaches the city, he'll be going up or ascending. This made it a very defensible fortress, and it also led to the common phrase, going up to Jerusalem. Thus the songs for traveling toward Jerusalem to worship at the temple are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Some scholars have described a ritual singing of these 15 songs on the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount from the Valley of Hinnom, which lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The temple had other gates, but this was a common route into the city and into the temple. That gate was long ago sealed by stone, but there are still 15 stone stairs there leading up to the ancient wall. So we imagine together the Israelite pilgrims pausing there out in the dust and the sun and singing these 15 Shir Hama'alot all together as a set. Since I only speak a few times a year, once a year, the last few years, uh, we make these our pilgrimage festivals and read the Psalms of Ascent aloud together. Hopefully these words are starting to feel familiar. Listen for the ones that we've studied before and try to remember their lessons. Let's all stand up together. Keeping in mind that image of the coming up, of coming up from the valley of Hinnom and standing at the base of the hillside below the city gate, with the dwelling place of God rising above us as a literal fortress and preparing to ascend to the temple. As before, we'll read them in order, starting with 120. And whenever one reader finishes, the next reader can just begin immediately. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord 
is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, 
are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. 
This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Listening once again to these words, we find that individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God going up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. And so we look to them to help us understand how we also may go about approaching God. First, we studied Psalm 124. Come to God remembering. Looking back at the Ebenezer's of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123 and saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes, understanding who he is in relationship to us and to all of creation, offering reverence and recognition of our need for mercy. We immersed ourselves in Psalm 130, learning to come to God seeking and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God have understood that he is just, that we are guilty, and that he offers us redemption by his own power and through his own work. We examined Psalm 125 and saw that his people come to God with unshaken trust, that God holds the patent on truth and righteousness, and it has no need of innovation that the world will not love us for trusting God and standing unmovable in the face of wickedness. We cuddled up with Psalm 131, which showed us that we must come to God with submitted selves, having received and accepted his discipline like a weaned child, and like that child having exerted our wills upon both body and spirit to move into a relationship with him of love, trust, and adoration. Then we discussed Psalm 128 and saw that we must come to God walking in his ways. Common grace includes the opportunity to make choices that matter and affect our lives and the lives of others, up to and including the choice to be one of those who fear God and beyond that to also walk in his ways. We must trust that he will honor our efforts and handle all the myriad things that we fall, that fall beyond our comparatively tiny ability to control. And a year ago, almost exactly, we saw in Psalm 127 that we must come to God seeking our security in him. The Lord is the only and ultimate source of our security. We must look to him, not to houses and cities, not to striving and short sleep. He alone will give us the means to our security. And today we will consider Psalm 121, coming to God as the object of his attention. Right off the bat, we see that there will be something different about this study. In most of our series about approaching God, I've focused on what we must do or what our attitude should be as we approach God. Even as we acknowledge that God is the first actor, we have for the most part discussed what our reaction should be 
as, per, as represented in the psalm. Certainly we'll find deep application today as well, but uh, as we shall see, Psalm 121 takes us firmly out of the driver's seat. This is a psalm that is most particularly all about God. He is the subject, and we are definitely the object in this poem. Let's read Psalm 121 again. As usual, I'll read from the Hebrew-English Bible. Psalm 121. Shir halamalot. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This psalm is less perplexing than Psalm 127 was, uh, if no less complex in its poetry. Their themes are, in fact, closely related, but there is no big surprise at the end of this one. Where the central idea of Psalm 127 was coy, Psalm 121 is bombastic. It's a song of emphasis. Perhaps that's why it's one of the most famous and often quoted, as Damon mentioned earlier, often badly quoted, of the Shir Hamalot, to be found anywhere from worship songs to hilltop monuments around the world. The theme is right, the theme is right here in verse 1. My help comes from the Lord. All the poetry of the psalm serves to emphasize the totality, completeness, universality and absoluteness of this thought. Let's look at that poetry now. These songs, you remember, arise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew, and this is a part of what sets psalms apart from the other kinds of scripture. Hebrew poetry works with a set of tools that is somewhat different from Western poetry, which relies on rhyme schemes and patterns of syllables and accents. By contrast, Hebrew poetry deals mainly in metaphor, simile, various kinds of repetition, parallelism, including some very complex interactions between words and thoughts and even sounds. Key words play a large part, as we'll see today, as well as sometimes elaborate imagery. Comparison and contrast make appearances. The most important thing to look for when you read Hebrew poetry is interaction. Uh, the, Hebrew the Hebrew language lacks the strict linear subject-verb-object forms that we find in English words and phrases instead interplay with each other and either even with other familiar works and passages of scripture. So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. In particular, as we look in um, Psalm 121, I want to look at uh, words and ideas that we may have seen in other psalms of ascent. I always do in the beginning my review of all of the different psalms that we have um, gone through. And that's particularly interesting today because there are a lot of, of calls between the Psalms of, of um, words and ideas that we have already encountered, which are then woven into this psalm as well. One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to us is the stanza. If we look at our poem, we can pretty quickly break it up into sections. Stanza 1, verses 1 and 2. 2 is verses 3 and 4. 3 is verses 5 and 6. And 4 is 7 and 8. Before we go too far, I want to make a little aside about the title of this psalm, A Song of Ascents. This is the only psalm in this set that is slightly different um, in its title at the beginning. Instead of reading Shir Ha Ma'alot, as we have said over the years, uh, and seen in all the other songs of Goings Up, Psalm 121 is titled Shir La Ma'alot, which could be better translated as a song to the ascents. 
Considering that the first line of the psalm says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, this may be a little bit of ancient witticism, or it could be a mistake. Um, Either way, it's an amusing detail that that's uh, included in this particular psalm. But anyway, let's look at at the, the psalm and see what we can see. Psalm 121, a song to the ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's consider that first image uh, in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Remember that we're looking for interactions, um, and I specifically adjured you to look for interactions with other psalms of ascent that we've studied. So what might this psalm remind us of? Perhaps the song of ascent we studied uh, second, which was Psalm 123, which taught us some years ago to come to God with upturned eyes. That was the whole theme. Psalm 123 takes the I, the word is ion, as its central image and begins, up, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. You could say that Psalm 121 and 123 are sister psalms. Their opening images allude to one another. Each calls the other to mind to anyone who's familiar with both of them. Further, the psalms are mirror images in a way, where Psalm 123 dealt with our perspective toward God, we'll soon see that Psalm 121 focuses on God's perspective toward us. Now, being a famous psalm, as I mentioned, Psalm 121 has been rigorously rigorously preached by various uh, interpreters, most of whom seem to spend a lot of effort on this image. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. What does it signify to lift my eyes to the hills before asking where does my help come from? Some say the hills represent the attacking armies of an enemy. After all, we saw that Jerusalem is a city on a hill but surrounded by hills, so maybe the psalmist is looking up in dread at his enemies on the surrounding ridgeline and crying out for help. Some see the hills representing the potential for human deliverance. Maybe the psalmist is looking up like Aragorn at Helm's Deep in The Lord of the Rings, hoping to see Gandalf come over the ridge with the, with the dawn and break the siege with fresh troops. Some conclude that the hills themselves represent creation and thereby point to the creator. I looked at the hills and saw that they were beautiful and thought of God who is my help. And some might bring to mind the story in 2 Kings 6, where Elisha was besieged at the city of Dothan. In the morning, Elisha's servant goes out of the house and sees an army arrayed in siege around the town. He runs to tell Elisha that they're in big trouble. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In that, instant, in that instance, God miraculously blinded the enemy, and Elisha led them away without harm to anyone. I don't see any reason to choose one of the meanings for this image in verse 1, or indeed to exclude any of them in favor of the others. Lifting the eyes in need of help communicates an evocative image. In any case, in desperate moments, we've all raised our eyes, either to the heavens or just searching for a solution to the trouble that we're in. The important thing is the psalmist's answer to the question. 
From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Taking stanza one as a whole, we discover the theme of the poem. I say discover, really the psalmist just tells us what it is. And this is not uncommon in Hebrew poetry. As we've seen before, it's always good to pay special attention to the beginning of a Hebrew poem, because in Hebrew, the most important idea often comes first. In English, we may like to think like Sherlock Holmes, get all the supporting details and then hit you with the crux of the matter at the end, but not so in Hebrew. Often when a Hebrew poet wants to emphasize something, he places at the beginning of the poem, section or line, and then more often than not repeats it in a slight variation to make sure that we didn't miss it. What follows interacts with and expounds upon that thought. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In this theme, we find another interaction with the psalm that we have studied in the past. The word help or ezer appears in both question and answer. And we, we recall our very first psalm of ascent, Psalm 124. It was all about the ezer, the help of God in times of trouble. We discussed the Ebenezer, or Ebenezer, the stone of help that Samuel set up to remind the nation of Israel of their deliverance from a sneak attack, saying, Thus far the Lord helped us. Remember Psalm 124? If, I had not, if, it, had not, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side... When men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive in the burning of their noses against us. And the conclusion in Psalm 124, 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Sounds familiar. By alluding to the other poems and familiar stories, the poet draws in their images or messages and weaves them into the new point that he's making. Since we don't know the historical composition, the historical order of composition, we can't say specifically who is alluding to whom, but as God is the ultimate author of the Psalms and he transcends time, we can safely say that it doesn't matter which was written first, the Psalms can all allude to one another, as indeed all scripture speaks to itself in an endless, complex structure of reference and cross-reference, allowing lifelong study without ever truly plumbing the depths of its complexity. Let's read on and see what new illumination we can find from Psalm 121. Stanza 1 has given us the thesis. I lift up my eyes to the hill, to the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Before we dive into stanza 2, let's take a moment and scan the poem as a whole. Don't read it line by line, but just look at the page um, itself and see what word stands out to you in the whole of Psalm 121. Is it the one that appears five times in all caps? Since repetition, repetition is the most common tool in Hebrew poetry, we do well to look for repeated words and as we, try to, as we try to understand the poem. With a cursory scan, we see the repetition of the Lord, all in capitals. Now, you will recall from our earlier studies that when we see the word Lord in capital letters, it indicates the name of God, Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, which we pronounce Yahweh, but whose original pronunciation is lost because the generations of Jewish people refuse to say it, lest they take the Lord's name in vain. This is the personal designation of God in his selfness, the creator and originator of all things, the beginning, the Lord himself. In Psalm 121, verse 2, he he is further identified as the creator by the traditional phrase who made heaven and earth, which we understand to mean the creator of everything that is. God has many roles, 
many attributes, many aspects, and many names, but in every psalm of ascent, we find his personal name, his origin of all things name, his intimate name, his who are you when you're at home name. His, the psalmists are, as it were, on a first name basis with the Almighty. Or more importantly, perhaps, he is on a first name basis with us. We're dealing once more with a personal interaction between God and man. And this intimate name of God appears in every stanza of Psalm 121, except for stanza 2. And there's a very good reason for that. Stanza 2, He will not allow your feet to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The reason that the name of the Lord does not appear in verses 3 and 4 is, counterintuitively, to place even more emphasis and focus on the Lord as the subject and primary actor of Psalm 121. For the span of four lines in stanza two, the creator God is the elephant in the room. You may remember from Psalm 127 the idea of ellipsis. Ellipsis is a kind of repetition by omission. It increases the focus on a word by leaving it out or implying it. So in Psalm 127 two, we saw, vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of toil. The beginning of the second and third line is understood to be an unstated repetition of the first word in the first line. In other words, vainly you, st- you start early standing up, vainly you sit up late, vainly you eat the bread of toil. Dropping the repeated word allows us to say the line more quickly, increasing uh, the momentum, and like an engine building up steam, it increases the velocity of the poetic lines. Now back here in Psalm 121, we see a related poetic form called delayed identification. Instead of implying the, re- the repetition of a word that we've already seen, Delayed identification gives us a list of actions without an actor and then comes swinging in at the end with the identity of the person performing these actions. The purpose is similar to ellipsis. It builds up momentum and most importantly, it builds up a cognitive tension that is meant to place more and more focus on the actor who appears at the end. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, the Lord keep, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep which here are we talking about? Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. In this case, the Lord is mentioned in stanza 1 as well as 3, but the function of stanza 2 is the same. By leaving out the name of the Lord for four lines, the psalmist builds up tension that drives more focus onto the Lord in the second half of the poem. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your, go- your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. The delayed identification is like a series of big arrows pointing at verse 5. And verse 5 stands right at the center of the poem, which is another place of prominence in Hebrew poetry. As we've seen before, many Hebrew poems have a turning point in the middle, a line that stands out and separates the first half from the second half. Usually it's emphasized by a change in the pattern. Verse 5 gives us the identification part of the delayed identification form, the Lord is your keeper. And the rest of the psalm is filled with the name of the Lord as the subject of nearly every sentence. We're getting the idea, but I just want to give one more piece of context that I think will set the prime actor of our poem into stark relief. In all my poetic analysis, I'm indebted to a British scholar from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne who's named uh, Wilfred G.E. Watson and his book, Classical Hebrew Poetry, A Guide to Its Techniques. It's a fairly dense academic tome that works pretty exhaustively through the technicalities of ancient Hebrew poetry. And it's 
and its corollaries in related ancient languages such as Babylonian, Akkadian, Ugartic. Watson gives no indication that he's a believer in the God of Israel any more than in Baal or the idols of Babylon. The scholar concerns himself with the patterns, not the principles. I want to read you a an Ugartic poem that he included as an example, which just happens to be a ritual, ritual prayer to Baal. Nothing like a little paganism on a Sunday morning. The, the idolaters are instructed, if a stalwart attacks your gates or a warrior your walls, you should raise your eyes to Baal. Then here's the prayer. O Baal, drive off the stalwart from our gate, the warrior from our walls. A bull calf, O Baal, we will set aside. The vow, Baal, we will fulfill. A male, O Baal, we will set aside. The crushed sacrifice, Baal, we will fulfill. Libation, Baal, we will libate. To the sanctuary, Baal, we will go up. The temple paths, Baal, we will tread. Then the ritual says, Baal, will drive the stalwart from your gate and the warrior from your walls. Now here's a rabbit trail that could take us very far afield. So I'll try to restrain myself. For the purposes of our discussion, we'll ignore the poetic forms and other details. I just want to focus on one question. Who is the subject of the Canaanite prayer? We have heard the name of Baal in every line, but who is the actor? In short, it is we. The worshippers of Baal make themselves the subject of their own prayer. It is all about what they will do for their God in order to get what they want. If you save us, we'll give you a nice fat bull. We'll libate some libations. Is he a god or a pet monster? When the Ugarits approached their idol, they came with a bribe. They believed they could manipulate their idol in order to bend history to their will and save their own skins. As we have seen before, this paradigm is the polar opposite of the one we see in the Jewish Psalms of Ascent. In Psalm 130, come to God seeking and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God have understood that he is just, that we are guilty, and that he offers us redemption by his own power and through his own work. And what could be further from the trappings of this pagan ritual than the images of Psalm 121 where the Lord is the primary willer and the primary actor in the salvation of his people? Which brings us to the question, if the Lord is the primary actor of Psalm 121, what is it that the Lord is doing? I lift up my eyes to the hill, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. The Lord shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Put simply, the Lord chooses to keep us. Not only that, but to be our keeper. In your NIV, you'll see the Lord watches over you. The word for keep or watch over is the verb shamar. It is the primary verb or action in Psalm 121, appearing over and over again in the action of our primary actor, the Lord. Shamar means to keep, to watch, to preserve, to guard. It is, ver- it is used variously for keeping a covenant keeping the Sabbath, or a shepherd keeping his flock. As the Israelites are entering the promised land, Joshua gives his famous, choose you this day who you will serve speech, concluding with, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then in verses 16 and 17 of Joshua 24, we find the response of the people. Then the people answered, 
Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. The word for preserved us in verse 17 is the word shamar. And indeed we have seen it before in Psalm 127. If the Lord guards not the city, vainly the watchman stays awake. Guards and watchmen both come from the root shamar. The Lord is your shamar. Everything in Psalm 121 serves this message. You are the subject of God's keeping. The creator of the universe keeps you. Everything forward and backward from verse 5 serves to support this message through a series of powerful images. In stanza 2, we found two. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The unmoved foot is another evocative image, though not perhaps a definitive one. We might think of God keeping our foot from slipping on a mountain path. But the word here, to slip, in the NIV, or to be moved, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew English Bible, carries an idea of being shaken. Not to put too much emphasis on it, but there's a suggestion of an outside force. I looked up other instances of the image, and what we tend to find are situations where someone is under duress. In Psalm 66, uh, 8 and 9, we find it in a song about the deliverance of the people from the pursuing armies of Egypt in the Exodus. If we take it as a military image, we can imagine when warriors fought with sword and shield, the ability to hold firm and not be driven back was paramount. As you raise your shield to meet a blow, you need to have a firm footing or you'll be driven backward. If you've ever read a description of one-on-one combat in Shakespeare or even the Narnia series, you've seen how the progress of the fight is tracked by which soldier steps back, gives ground under a blow, and which holds his ground, remains steady under the attack. In the book, A Fighter's Heart by Sam Sheridan, the author quotes a very famous master of Tai Chi named William C.C. Chen. We had some paganism, so we'll just get some Taoism in there while we're at it. Tai Chi is that super slow martial art that people do in parks for their health. But it turns out that it is a martial art in the sense of a practice that originally had a military application. And one of its prime principles is the rooting of the foot to provide power for punching or fluidity to dodge a punch. Master Chen said, When I started doing Tai Chi, I realized that power isn't in the arms. It comes from the hips. And then I start to think maybe 10 years later, and I realize it's coming from the legs. And then after 20 years, I saw that it was actually coming from the toe. I suspect this concept would not be unknown to the warrior herdsmen of Israel. To have unmoved feet, to stand firm, to be prepared to take an attack or to avoid a blow. So we have this image of God, the Lord Almighty, giving his people a firm footing when they're under duress. Next, we see the image of God as a wakeful watchman. We recognize by now the stair-step parallelism in the next three lines. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. First the image, and then the imagery stated more elaborately for emphasis and absoluteness. And we notice the word behold, or in the NIV, indeed. It's that word hine that we have mentioned before. It means, hey, pay attention. The writer wants to make a strong impression that the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, is always on duty. We see the allusion to Psalm 127 again. If the Lord guards not the city, vainly the watchman stays awake. Well, the Lord does guard the city, and he is always awake. 
His attention toward us is unfaltering. He never goes off duty. He's infinite and omnipotent. He doesn't need rest and he doesn't get bored or distracted. Which brings us to stanza three. In addition to the identification of our delayed identification pattern, verses five and six also contain two different kinds of parallelism and an extended metaphor. I told you it was complex. The good news is that it also is fairly clear in the depth of its meaning. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Here's the heart of the poem. Here's the center of its message. It begins with a simple and powerful statement. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord watches over you. Yahweh is our overnight sentry protecting your camp. And then the stanza expands and expounds upon that statement. The Lord is your keeper, the shade at your right hand. You can see why it's called a stair-step parallel, this one. The second line running much longer and adding to the, the thought in the first line. The word for shade here is a simple word meaning shadow, but it carries the idea of haven and protection, and no wonder. Have you ever tried to park in Palmdale? If you try to park in Palmdale during the summer months, which is most of them, you'll discover that it doesn't matter how far the parking space is from the building, all that matters is the shade. Every parking space with a leaf width of shade will be full. In the Middle East, a land not unlike Palmdale in the summer, it is no surprise that the idea of shade is also the idea of refuge. So in Psalm 17, 8, 9, we find, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wing from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. To be in the shadow is to be under the protection. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. In Hebrew usage throughout the Old Testament, we find the reference to the right hand. It's not an insult for lefties. There's other positive symbolism of its own for left-handedness, or left hands, at least. But since most people are right-handed, the right hand came to symbolize the ability to act in the world. The motive power, the animating force. Looking back into Exodus 15, 11 through 12, once more, just after crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand... And the earth swallowed them. The shade on your right hand is your refuge. An opportunity to rest in the shade is your ability to husband your strength, to continue to live and act in the world. Then the psalmist takes this idea of shade and expands it. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. That's a big shadow. Now, unfortunately, this is another passage that lends itself to some, shall we say, interesting speculations. The sun part seems pretty straightforward. Uh, but lots of people get hung up on the moon. Why doesn't the psalmist want to be struck by the moon? I have heard everything from that moonlight represents homelessness because you have no shelter at night to a speculation that ancient peoples believe that the moon caused madness. And as usual, I think the clearest answer is in the poetry itself. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. To really catch the drift here, we need to understand two new tools of Hebrew poetry. The polar word pairs and something called chiasmus. Polar word pairs are fairly straightforward. For the most part, they represent a totality by mentioning its two extremes. For example, uh, in English, when someone says, I was soaking wet from head to toe, we know that they mean every part of them 
was soaking wet. The totality. We saw this in verse 2 of Psalm 121 already. The Lord who made heaven and earth is understand, understood to mean the Lord who made everything. The totality. Verse 6 gives us two such word pairs. Sun and moon, day and night. In other words, the Lord who is the shadow of your right hand casts that shadow all the time. Day and night, whether the sun is up or the moon is up. Adding to this idea of totality is a pattern called chiasmus. Now stick with me. I'll try to make it fairly painless. Chiasmus is a pattern where a set of words or ideas is followed by a set of the same or similar words or ideas, but in the opposite order. With my apologies. Having already quoted a pagan prayer and cited a Taoist exercise program, let me stoop to quoting the poetical stylings of Snoop Dogg, who told us, I got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. That is a perfect chiasmus. Pattern, reverse of pattern. If you were to read our Psalm 121.6 with the original word order, it would say, By day the sun shall not strike you, nor the moon by night. The polar word pairs are arranged in a chiasmus. Day, sun, moon, night. Communicating both the totality and the completeness of the metaphorical shadow. Leaving the moon madness out of it, we can see the message. The Lord keeps us both completely and continually. There's no part or aspect of our lives that does not warrant his attention, and there's no moment, day or night, when his protection fades. Stanza 4 adds even more emphasis, if that's possible, by dropping the images and speaking explicitly. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Here we find preserve, once again the word shamar, to keep, our, to keep or guard, repeated three times, and each repetition expands our understanding. First, we see the Lord is protecting us from evil. No fancy translation needed it. The word is ra, it means bad. Evil is the opposite of good, bad things. The Lord guards us not only in the physical world, but in the moral realm. Next, the psalmist expands our understanding further. He shall preserve your soul, the part of you that is alive and eternal. The Lord guards us in the spiritual realm. Then in verse 8, we have another polar word pair. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in. Once again, it represents a totality. In this case, meaning everything that you do. From the time you leave your house until you return, and from the time you return until you leave again. In short, the attention and protection of the Lord includes every detail of your existence. In Jewish tradition, this idea is represented by a mezuzah. You may have seen one before, even if you didn't realize it. A mezuzah is a little rectangular box, usually with a symbol on the front that looks like a wonky W. The W is actually the letter Shin, which stands for Shaddai, a name of God meaning Almighty. You see the mezuzah attached to the doorway of Jewish homes. Uh, inside the box is a little scroll with scripture written on it, and it's customary to touch the mezuzah every time you pass through the door. Observant Jews place the mezuzah in obedience to the Old Testament command to write these words on the doorposts of your houses. Jewish people with a little more mystical bent believe that the mezuzah has an actual, is an actual talisman or good luck charm that magically protects them. In either case, the mezuzah is a physical reminder of this promise in Psalm 121, that the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in, and everything in between. 
And finally, at the end of the verse, of verse 8, we find the ultimate expansion of the idea that the Lord is guarding you. <coughs> From this time forth and even forevermore. Time and eternity do not limit the attention of the Lord. His keeping is not temporary, but eternal, now and forevermore. Another word, uh, word pair indicating temporal completeness. The Lord keeps you always. And here's an interesting thought. Since God is infinite, he has the ability to give each of us individually all the attention necessary to know us to the tiniest detail without diminishing from the store of attention he has available for someone else. It's a bit of a mind bender, but the upshot is this. The multitudinous details of your life in all of its complexity do not overwhelm the Lord. Indeed, he sees you more clearly and understands you more deeply than you do yourself. He is keeping you like a flock, like a Sabbath, like a covenant. He is guarding you completely and totally, day and night, not passively but actively, not just physically but spiritually, and not temporally but for all of time. So what does it mean to come to God as the object of his attention? Other than leaving us humbled, and astounded that the creator of the universe would lavish such attention on us. I have two thoughts and will pray. First of all, this understanding should give us pause concerning the ways that we spend the moments of our lives. What is God witness to when he bends his infinite attention upon us? How does he feel about the details of our lives? As he guards us from evil, are we taking due care to give up to him the evil that rises up within us? Are we seeking him in loving response to his infinite love or wounding him with our pride and selfishness, pettiness and spite? Worse yet, are we provoking his justice and judgment? Should, be we, should we be worrying like David in Psalm 139? Where shall I go from your spirit, spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Secondly, this understanding of God's attention toward us should offer us comfort in the cares and troubles of our lives. You are not alone. This is someone with infinite capacity, not only to know you, but to care about you, to value you, and he understands what is best for you for your eternal life as well as your life here on earth. I will leave you with the words of Paul from Romans 8.35 and following from ESV. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or madness or nakedness or danger or sword? (coughs) It is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as the objects of your infinite attention, and more than that, your infinite love. We pray as we leave this place that you would keep us from evil, Keep evil from us and keep evil from rising up within us. Thank you for your sleepless 
endless, total, complete, and eternal care for us, even in the very details of our lives. Amen.